Chapter 5, The Child, in which we examine Abraham and his wife's failures to trust God, the destruction this brings, and how an Egyptian slave girl shows us how to trust God. Genesis 16, verse 2. Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Key lesson. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means trusting him, even when it doesn't make sense. Wrong move, you're dead. That growth is poison. I was born in Ohio. Later, as an adult, I moved to California for a job. That is, however, where the staggering similarities between me and LeBron James begins to wane. Growing up in Ohio, I was a Boy Scout, and being from the Midwest, Whenever we went camping, the leaders were deliberate to make sure there was one pattern every single kid recognized. It was a plant that we needed to be able to spot immediately and avoid at all costs. As such, the scoutmasters and leaders went over the pattern ad nauseum. The leaves are always in three. The leaves have pointy tips. The leaves are shaped like teardrops. The leaves have jagged, serrated edges. The leaves are glossy on top. If you're from the Midwest, then you know. The plant I'm talking about is poison ivy. They drill this into us. If you see this pattern, avoid the plant because it has a sticky, oily resin on its leaves that sticks to clothing and causes an incredibly uncomfortable allergic reaction. So, unless you want a miserable rash, kids, learn to recognize the pattern. Three leaves, pointy tips, jagged edges, glossy leaves. If you see these three leaves that look like this, don't go off the path. Don't touch it. Don't pretend to touch it. Steer clear. If you see the pattern, stay away. Just like my Boy Scout leaders, the authors of the Bible want us to see patterns. They repeat key ideas using language and repetition to draw our attention to what's most important. And just like the Boy Scouts, as readers of the Bible, we cannot be lazy readers. We have to see the patterns, or something bad could happen. Uh, Okay, maybe not a rash, but maybe something even worse. When I was an English teacher at a local high school, at the start of the year, I would hold up whatever literature we were going to be studying. I would tell the class that this is the moment in history worth celebrating. You and I are in the presence of brilliance, I would boom, channeling my inner Robin Williams, of staggering, and I mean staggering, genius. I would explain that these novels, these plays, these anthologies of poems were each written by one of the greatest minds our world has ever encountered. Inside each was a treasure, but it's an enchanted treasure. It will not simply open. It will not give its treasure to unworthy parties. It will remain closed to the lazy. It will not surrender itself to the unthinking, the unimaginative. But the author has left us a trail and clues to unlocking it. And if we are careful and thoughtful, friends, we can solve this puzzle and gain invaluable treasure within. The same literary approach goes for the Bible, which is, in my mind, the most brilliant and staggering book of genius ever written. But like every other work of genius, it makes demands of us. Do not be lazy. There are many important patterns that the biblical authors want us to pay attention to. In fact, many, most, of the stories of the Bible have hyperlinks to other parts of the Bible. They link to each other in subtle and creative ways. And I want to focus on one that's relevant to the story of Abraham. But the pattern doesn't start with Abraham. It starts in page three of the Bible. The first pattern. 
As we saw in Genesis 1, God creates a paradise. God gives humankind, Adam and Eve, everything they need, including each other and him. God has created humankind to live in deep and close connection to him as his selim. Just as heaven and earth belong together, so do humanity and God. God gives them dominion on the earth as his representatives. But in light of that, God makes one firm request. Humans must trust God, not themselves, to define what's good, what's right, what's true, what's beautiful, what's real. Then in Genesis 3, the serpent enters, asking a seemingly innocent question. The serpent manipulates, spinning a lie to Eve based on her own faulty thinking that God is keeping good things from her and encourages her desire to take from the tree. Eve, baby, baby, check it out for yourself. Trust your own judgment. You do you, baby girl. Grow up and become the human. No, the woman that you need to be. That's what God would want. That's what God would want anyway. But just see what the author of the story does. Notice how the conversation starts, how it continues, how it ends regarding word choice. So the first sentence, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The ratio of God versus human-centered language here is one-to-one. Did God say you must not eat? And then sentence two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. That's a ratio of one to four, God language versus human language. One God mention, four mentions of you or we. Sentence three, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a two to four ratio. The serpent responds with two gods and four yous. And then finally, sentence four, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. The ratio of God language versus human-centered language is zero to three. Three references to woman or she and zero references to God. And that's the point. God isn't in this part of the story. Humans have pushed him out. This moment is often called the fall. It's the moment when humans decide that autonomy and independence from God is actually a better path. Spoiler alert, it isn't that the serpent is telling the truth and that there is a reality out there somehow better than the one God created for them. Spoiler alert, there isn't. This is the first moment that humans shrug off God and decide to take matters into their own hands, believing it would end better. And although this is the first time it happens, it's absolutely not the last time. Nope a definite pattern would emerge. The Bible in Tetris. See, desire, take. Patterns matter in literature and in life. And if you see the same pattern repeated again and again, it's because the author wants us to pay attention to it. It's like a sequence of Tetris blocks. Pretend for a second that there are three Tetris blocks, each one representing a different, specific, unique Hebrew word. Now, in real Tetris, there are seven different blocks, with 343 different three-block combinations possible. But in the ancient Hebrew language, that contains around 8,000 words. So that's more than 216 billion different possible combos. Now, let's say out of that 216 billion different combos, you kept seeing the same exact combination of three specific Hebrew words, three specific Tetris blocks, and they're always lumped together in the exact same way. If that same pattern keeps showing up in place after place after place, there's a good chance the author is being very intentional. 
Well, that happens a lot in the Bible. And it happens here, starting in Genesis 3. Here is the poison ivy pattern. God tells humans not to do something. God is super duper clear. Humans see something they want, but getting it would involve doing the exact opposite of what God said. Humans desire that thing, humans take that thing, and then things go from bad to worse. This pattern is all over the Bible. God says something, see, desire, take, and then things go from bad to worse. Here are just four quick examples. In the story of Adam and Eve, God says, you can eat from any tree, but you can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they see, desire, take. Listen to Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So see, desire, take. And what's the consequence? Sin and death enter God's good world, alienating Adam from Eve and from the Garden of Eden, from eternal life, from themselves, and from God himself. Example number two, from the book of Joshua, the battle of Jericho and the man named Achan. God is telling the Israelites, listen, when you go into battle, you're not allowed to take any of the spoils of war, but a guy named Achan does. So God clearly says this in Joshua 6, 18, God says, keep away from the devoted things that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. That's what God commands. And then in Joshua 7, this is what the text says. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylon, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I desired them and I took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Saw, desire, take. The consequence, because of Achan's sin, 36 Israelite soldiers are killed in battle when God removes his favor, and then Achan and his entire family are killed. Third example from the story of Israel and King Saul. God clearly says in 1 Samuel 12, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. God says, I want to be your king. I want to be your king. But then Israel's like, no, we don't want you as a king. And here's what it says in 1 Samuel 12. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. And in the next couple of verses, Saul is described as the desire of Israel. And the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we desire a king. We want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had all of Israel come forward by the tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And when he brought forth the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. And finally, Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. So again, you see the sight, the see, the desire, the want, and then the taking. And of course, the consequence is that Saul's kingship ends very, very badly. God wants to be king of Israel. And instead, a bad, flawed, fallen human becomes the king. And then, of course, another famous story, the story of David and Bathsheba. God clearly says in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, don't commit adultery, right? But then listen what happens in 2 Samuel 11. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From his roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very desirable, very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent the messengers to go get her. Again, see, desire, and take. And what are the consequences? 
While Bathsheba is sexually assaulted, her husband Uriah is killed along with other soldiers in battle. David and Bathsheba's child dies. David doesn't deal with his sexual sin in his own house. A rebellion against his rule is started by his son Absalom. The kingdom of Israel is split. Absalom is killed. It's all bad. The point is, this see-desire-take pattern is everywhere. I see it. I like it. I want it. I got it. Human, it seems, are sadly predictable. We say to ourselves the exact same kinds of things that Eve and Israel and Achan and David said to themselves. If we don't get what we want, we're prepared to take matters into our own hands. The authors of the Bible, which include God himself, are trying desperately to train us to see the world correctly, to train us to see the snake, the temptation, the evil, the consequence, the destruction. They're expecting us to pick up on these hyperlinks. Master Yoda is trying to train us in Dagobah, but like Luke, we're stubborn and headstrong. The authors of the Bible also paint this sad sequence of events, this see, desire, take in the life of Abraham. I know up to now, we've talked about Abraham as a great example of how to love God, but this is where Abraham's life is more like an anti-example for us not to follow. Instead of continuing on in the proper pattern of hear, trust, obey, Abraham falls victim to see, desire, take, this sad Tetris pattern of sin. The land of drought. The first example of Abraham not trusting God happens rather quickly in the story. After leaving Haran, Abraham goes to the land God leads him to, and then God shows up again and says very clearly, to your offspring, I will give this land. God is saying, this is your home now. Then a mere two verses later, something bad happens. Genesis 12, 10, it says, now there was a famine in the land. And Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was so severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Okay, so let me paraphrase. God says, leave Haran and go to Israel. Abraham's like, yep. And then God's like, okay, this is the land I'm going to give you. Also, your wife will have a child and you'll become a patriarch. Abraham's like, yes, great. Drought happens. Abraham, I should probably leave this land and go to Egypt. And then Egypt's like, hey, that woman you're with is pretty. And Abraham's like, she's my sister. Take her. So if we're paying attention in the span of one paragraph in the Bible, after hearing God himself make elaborate and very clear promises about the land and the child he's going to give Abraham, Abraham has now left that land and given his wife away. So God say, I want to give you this land and have a child. Abraham gives away his land and gives away his wife. I could almost hear God kicking the wall and saying, like Jerry Maguire to Rod Tidwell, help me help you. But man, I don't want to be too hard on Abraham. After all, some of you listening to this know exactly what he went through. You ever been there? In the metaphorical land of drought? The land of deep disappointment, deep disillusionment? You have an idea about how life's going to go, how things are going to go, and then real life happens. And it's not at all what you thought you were signing up for. It's tough to believe God's with you when life isn't going well. What must Abraham have thought? This supernatural deity said he was going to bless Abraham and told him to go south several hundred miles. Abraham did what God said, and now this, a drought? 
Did you bring me down into this region away from my home and family so I could die? How was Abraham supposed to make sense of this? Was God cruel? Was he a jokester? Unreliable? Surely a sign that God is with you is that things go swimmingly. So what happens when a drought hits? Did God remove his favor? Perhaps Abraham even wondered, did I hear wrong? These are soul-crushing, faith-eating moments of disappointment and hardship. It's tough to trust God when things aren't going well because those situations plant the seed of doubt that casts a long shadow over our lives. Maybe God isn't good. Or maybe he's good. Yes, he's good. I'm just not one of his favorites. Other people get nice things, not me. After living as a single man for most of his life, the intellectual giant C.S. Lewis finally found someone who was his joyful equal. Her name was Joy Davidman. They were married when C.S. Lewis was 58 years old. Four years later, Joy died from bone cancer. What a cruel twist of life. To wait so long to find such love and have it ripped away by the cruelty of cancer. Lewis's closest friends, including the literary great J.R.R. Tolkien, encouraged him to write to help him process his grief. Lewis wrote, quote, No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I am not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The problem, Lewis wrote, wasn't that he would suddenly cease to believe in God. The problem was that he would come to believe such dreadful things about God. Lewis's fear was not saying to himself, oh, there is no God, but rather, oh, so this is what God's really like. Stop kidding yourself. Lewis wrote of this fear. Quote, but you go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. This is the land of drought, and the thoughts begin to flood in. God's left. God won't provide. God's forgotten. It's up to me. I must make things happen. I have to make sure I have what I need. There's no guarantee I'm alone. The story requires us to do some work here because it's a bit ambiguous and vague. The narrator does not help us evaluate Abraham's actions. It does not tell us, and Abraham sinned mightily by God by going to Egypt, and God's anger burned white hot. It just gives us the story. Was Abraham simply being pragmatic and smart? Or was he faithless? Or was it a combination? In a drought in the ancient world, going to a lush area around the Nile River, the largest freshwater river in the world, that seems like a smart move to prevent death from starvation, doesn't it? We justify our actions, don't we? And then there's the matter about lying about his wife. These were different times. Abraham was entering Egypt, the most powerful empire on earth. And the most powerful leader of the most powerful empire on earth had a legal carte blanche. Such men did not ask traveling nomads like Abraham for his beautiful wife. They just made her a widower and took her. See, desire, take. That's what happens. Genesis 12, 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. 
And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her, they desired her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Same pattern, see, desire, take. Abraham developed a ruse based on some half-truths that Sarah was his sister. He abandons his wife, giving her away. It's difficult not to read into the story that, above all, Abraham was not going to rely on God for help in this situation. That Abraham thought that God was either unwilling or unable to protect him from harm. You do what you need to do. You hustle. But as we read this, or or listen to it, even with all the justifications and rationalizations, hey, Abraham got Pharaoh's favor, and he got some donkeys and sheep and camels out of the deal, it's difficult not to stare at the story and say, if you give away your land when there's drought and your own wife when there's a threat, is that what it means to live a life trusting God to protect and provide and be with you? Or put another way, how many camels is your wife worth? Abraham, it seems, has lost the plot. The storms of life have veered his ship off course. But even if Abraham is faithless and confused, God is not. God, the story says, is always active, and even the most powerful forces on earth, like the Pharaoh, aren't an issue for God. God sends afflictions to Pharaoh to get his attention. What's fascinating is that the term serious disease is the Hebrew word COVID. I'm joking, that's not true at all. But Pharaoh's response is an outright indignation. Abraham is reunited with Sarah. Not sure I'd want to be there for that conversation. And Abraham is driven out of Egypt by Pharaoh. Genesis 12, 17 says, But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me? He said, Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Because, in the end, remember, Egypt is not supposed to be where Abraham is. And Sarah is not supposed to be someone else's wife. God has a plan, and this is not it. I'm amazed by the lengths that God goes to plaster over the litany of questionable choices that Abraham makes. Abraham might not have believed that God would intervene in human affairs for his benefit, but after this encounter, at least some of those fears must have been dispersed. And Abraham goes back to the promised land. And in Genesis 13, 1, it says, So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There, Abram called on the name of the Lord. I find this comforting. After a season of dangerous circumstances because of famine and threat of death, after a time of questionable choices about uncertainty about how God works or what it means to live life with him, Abraham goes back to the basics. He goes back to what he knows. He goes back to where he knows God spoke. He goes back to the altar. And he calls upon the name of the Lord, a symbol of his trust and allegiance. God, are you there? You were here once. We spoke. I am lost now. Will you speak again? Because I want to hear. The story tells us that after returning back to Canaan from Egypt, there's conflict with Lot. The land can't support all the animals. They must split up. 
and Abraham tells Lot to choose which way he wants to go. Abraham gives Lot first dibs, and Lot's no fool. Genesis 13.10, Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan toward Zorar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out to the east. In this moment, I think Abraham is showing something different. Trust. It's as though Abraham is saying to Lot, look, I know that land over there looks like the best land. It's lush, well-watered, good for crops and farm animals. I'm going to let you choose. I will go the opposite way, trusting that God will provide for me. We don't see any hint of that see, desire, take pattern. Instead, Abraham's going all in with God in trust. And what happens immediately after this episode? God himself speaks. Genesis 13, 14. Then the Lord said to Abram after Lot had departed from him, look around from where you are to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. So if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is God saying, hey, Abraham, I'm with you. Remember those promises of the land and offspring? I'm not revoking them. This is where I spoke to you before. I haven't changed. I am always what I am. I don't lie. You can trust me. So Abraham builds an altar. Another thin place has occurred. Another apocalypse. More information about God. Apparently, he's more devoted to Abraham than Abraham could have ever imagined and more able to move and act in the world than anything Abraham could have ever anticipated. Ancient gods were supposed to be served by humans, but here's God helping him, saving him from trouble, intervening in his life. Incredible. Again, Abraham shows us this is a God worth worshiping. No, more than that. This is a God worth trusting. When waiting hurts. We just watched the lengths God had to go in order to bring his promises to fulfillment because Abraham failed to trust God. But this failure was not Abraham's most egregious or harrowing. That moment would come later. In the previous chapter in Genesis 15, Abraham asked God a direct question. How am I going to become a patriarch if I don't have a child? Is my servant Eliezer going to be my heir? God directly responds, saying, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. God is clear. God has spoken. But then the child doesn't come. A year passes. Two years. Five. A decade. Ten years. Abraham and Sarah grow more than restless. They grow desperate. And they repeat the same tragic pattern. Even though God has spoken clearly, it's time for us as humans to take matters into our own hands. So Sarah devises a chilling plan. It's laid out in Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. 
So she said to Abram, Behold, look, see, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. The pattern is here. Sarah sees she has no children, desires to have a child, takes Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gives her to Abraham to sleep with her. And there's also a spiritual dimension in this as well. In verse 2, it's clear who Sarah blames for why she is not yet a mother. She says, quote, the Lord has kept me from having children. And so Sarah, clearly thinking she cannot trust or rely on God, takes matters into her own hands. Wow, this moment's difficult to process. Abraham is supposed to be the protagonist, but it's hard not to write him off entirely after his jaunt to Egypt and now this. The first thing we need to come to terms with is that Abraham has a servant girl, the Texas slave, although what comes to mind for most modern American readers when we see the word slave is chattel slavery. Historians and archaeologists tell us that something slightly different is going on in the Middle East during that time. There's a lot of time, a lot of distance here. The cultural issues surrounding the term servant or slave or even wife in the ancient Near East give us some problems. But the solution to childlessness in the ancient world was not in vitro fertilization, but taking a second wife or using another woman as servant or slave as a surrogate. But the narrator is giving us hints that all of this, even though it was common back then, is deeply troubling and not what God wanted. So here's what we know. Sarah controls every aspect of Hagar's life, including the use of her body. Abraham affirms Sarah's control over Hagar. Abraham's passivity is an echo of Adam's passivity in Genesis 3.6. Sarah inflicts abuse on Hagar. The Hebrew word mistreated in Genesis 16.6 is the same one that's used for the Egyptian oppression of the Israelites in Exodus 1.11. Hagar is impregnated, not by her choice, but by the choice of another. Hagar is not free to return to her home of Egypt. Hagar's child, once born, will not belong to her. Her owners will take her child from her. This situation causes Hagar to, quote, despise Sarah, Genesis 16.4, because, of course. When Hagar runs away, Genesis 16.6, the verb that's used is fled, the Hebrew word bara, which is used later in Exodus 2.15 in the context of fear and oppression. When Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled, he bara, from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. It's not always wise to import our modern categories and words into the Bible, but in our seminary class, Gary proposed a thought experiment. Was Hagar a victim of sex trafficking? Gary asked us to consider for a moment the idea that Hagar was a young slave woman escaping sex trafficking. He did this as a way to activate the imaginations and empathies inside of our hearts. Maybe that's too distracting of a term for you. That's okay. The story doesn't use that word, but through its careful, deliberate word choice, I think it's attempting to show us the full relational and emotional devastation and awfulness of this situation. And it's inviting us to consider the grievous pain inflicted on Hagar. 
the pattern of see, desire, take, again, juxtaposed to hear, trust, and obey, always results in catastrophe. All, always. And if this story shows us anything, it's that not trusting God has severe consequences. But one of the most uncomfortable parts of the story is not that Abraham and Sarah don't trust God. It's the cruel realization that I do the exact same thing. The tendency to take matters into my own hands when God's moving too slowly, and he always seems to be moving too slowly, is not foreign to me. It's what I do too. American Idols. Okay, now comes the part of the book where things get uncomfortable. Maybe really uncomfortable. I asked a number of my mentors, including Gary, what they thought were the biggest areas where we, as Americans, act just like Abraham and Sarah, where we take matters into our own hands. What are the key areas that American Christians tend not to trust God? The answers that came back were unanimous. I'm not even going to tell you what they are, because if you see what they are, chances are you'll stop listening. So I'm just going to sneak them in here and just keep talking. Idol number one. If the term idols is meant to represent areas of life where people do their own thing for their own reason, without following God or trusting God, then the first one is one of the most personal and most controversial. My mentors and older experienced pastors said people don't trust God when it comes to their sexual expression. Oh boy, we're in the deep end now. As we've seen in the creation story in Genesis, God created humanity as embodied, sexed creatures. It's part of who we are. But ever since the early church in the days of Rome, the Christian sexual ethic has been one of the most unpopular tenets of the Christian faith. Whatever you think about it, whatever your views, cultural anthropologists, sociologists, and psychologists have outlined the fact that human sexuality, how modern people experience and think about sex, has undergone dramatic changes in the last few decades. I want to talk through just five major tectonic shifts in human sexuality since the 1960s. And I just want to say, again, I'm deeply embedded here to the work of John Mark Comer and Bridgetown Church in Oregon, in Portland, for their series on sexuality that they produced in 2019. Anyway, here are five radical changes in how we think, how we express, and process sexuality in the West in the last one or two generations since the 60s. Number one, sex has been disconnected from childbearing and family. The first oral contraceptive, Enovid, which was a mix of the hormones progesterone and estrogen, was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 1960. It was simply called the pill. And it wasn't until 1972, in the case of Eisenstadt versus Baird, when the Supreme Court legalized birth control for unmarried people. Before that, it was actually illegal for a woman to get oral birth control unless she had a husband. But it had implications beyond that. For most of human history, it was simply not an option to experience sex without at least a high risk of long-term responsibility. And this had all sorts of side effects on sexuality. But the main one is that it shifted the primary purpose of sexuality for most people in and outside marriage to be pleasure, not procreation. Don't at me. I'm just telling you what sociologists are reporting. Big radical change number two, sex has become disconnected from marriage. 
For most people in nearly every single culture in human history, sex was tied to marriage commitment. It still is for most of the world, not only for Christians, but for the Dalai Lama, for most of Islamic culture, and really throughout most of the rest of the world outside the coastal cities of the U.S. This has all sorts of implications, but the major one we're seeing now is this has created an anxiety around sexuality because so many people now have deep ties or soul ties without any long-term commitment of, I'm with you in this until the end. Big radical shift number three, sex has been disconnected from male-female relationships. We're less than a few years past the legalization of gay marriage in the U.S., and it feels so much longer than that, perhaps because it's been in the works for a great deal longer than that, at least since the 80s, and the beginning of LGBTQ plus rights. Whatever you think about this, it's a major shift in how people view sexuality. Radical shift number four, sex has become disconnected from love, emotion, and relational commitment of any kind for some people. This is actually, in some ways, the most radical shift of all. The advent of apps like Tinder shows the codification of the ethos of the hookup culture. The progression of human dating used to move from common interest with someone to friendship to romantic attraction to sexual connection. Now with dating apps, it's almost completely reversed. Sleep with someone, then in the morning, go grab some coffee, see if you have anything in common, perhaps develop a relationship, and see if you can find someone you can maybe spend the rest of your life with. And finally, radical change number five. Sex has become disconnected from real people. The proliferation of pornography throughout our digital world has a real impact on real people. Over the last 10 years, the percentage of American men between 18 and 30 who reported not having sex nearly tripled from 10% to 28%. Researcher and sociologist Dr. Mark Regeneris has a hypothesis about this, writing that, quote, the quality of porn and masturbation may well have reached a level significant enough to satisfy many men, such that the pursuit of real sex with real women seems no longer a benefit worth the cost of wooing. Look, there were many revolutions that happened in the 20th century. And if the goal of a revolution is to overthrow those in power and replace it with another government, then it seems as though the sexual revolution might have been the most successful. Mary Eberstadt, in her book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, writes, quote, the sexual revolution was the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes as long as those involved are consenting adults. Look, it's not like all those shifts that we just talked about didn't happen in ye olden times. What's new at these shifts are now seen as human progress virtuous progress, throwing off the shackles of prudish traditionalism so we can finally be our freest and happiest selves. And if you look from the data from social researcher, although not identical to the broader culture, people who identify as Christians have similar rates of pornography use, premarital sex, divorce. This all seems to imply that sex, even for Christians, is an area a lot of people have decided that they're going to just do what they want to do. The Christian teaching about sexuality is not difficult to understand. It's either in a lifelong, committed, monogamous, opposite-gender, covenantal relationship called marriage or not at all. It's that, of course, but it's also far more than that. It's God asking us as a culture and as individuals, where is all this going? Who are you going to believe about this important issue of sex? Are you going to believe me? 
or someone else. If the data is right, then for a lot of folks, even Christians, the answer is thanks, but no thanks, God. It's too much to involve you in something as private, impersonal, and important as my sex life. Something to think about. Idol number two. For the second idol, the second area of life where people don't trust God, I'd like to go back to education and academic success for a second. I got to thinking about this one. It feels to me that for many people, academic achievement is so important because it absolutely hits on so many of those core motives that we talked about in chapter four. It provides or promises to provide a way to get to our deepest heart's needs. But look at how it promises to meet those needs. Here's what I think the narrative is. Academic performance provides the pathway to success. You get good grades, you get into a good college, you get a good career, and then you're successful and can make a lot of money. Bam. Education provides the pathway to comfort. With success comes money, and money allows you to have and do what you want. That's comfort. Education provides you with control. With more money, you can finally have more control in life, security, stability. And sure, money can't solve every problem, but it can solve a lot of them. And education provides you with approval. Your children are a reflection of you. So having your kid be a valedictorian or get into that great school and have a great career is an affirmation for you as a parent. It's a great way to climb the social ladder. Now, just like looking at that, I see a common thread. It's almost like education isn't the goal. It's almost like education is simply a means to an end, and that end is money. And I would make the case that money is the most malleable and shifty of all idols because it promises to provide for nearly every single heart motive. You want to be seen as beautiful and stylish? Money can buy you the finest of things. You want to be seen as successful? Driving that car or posting pictures from that vacation sure will help. You want comfort? Getting that big house or that cushy second home on the beach sure will help. You want power? Money makes the world go round. You have money, you already have power. You want acceptance? Heck, players, if you have enough money, celebrities and fame will find you. Here's the challenging thing about money. It could be the central driving force for people's lives, whether they have it or they don't. People who have money will die before they give it up. And people who don't have it will die trying to get it. As I talked to my mentors and older, wiser pastors, they all said, money is a central motivating factor for most people because it allows them to be in complete control of their lives. One test of whether something is a central motivation is to fill in the blank in this question. If I had blank, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure and be satisfied. And for a lot of people, the answer to that blank is money. Sadly, this nexus of confused motives often leaves people accidentally crashing on the rocks of workaholism. There's a guy in a church, we'll call him Mark. Mark had a high-profile vice president job at a prestigious company in the area. When he wasn't traveling to China to meet with factories that made his company sought-after products, he was on the phone with them. 14-hour days, standard. At one point, he came home and his wife said, I have three months left before I've got no feelings left for you whatsoever. And then she said, and by the way, your kids have learned to stop even asking when you're going to come home. Another guy I met, we'll call him Tim. He and his wife were interested in getting more involved in church, but he told me it was tricky because he was under relentless pressure at work. He was working at a startup, everyone hoping they'd be picked up as the next big thing and strike it rich. He told me, I have to work 70 hours a week. That's standard. 
There's a line of people behind me just waiting to take my job who would kill for my job. I can't coast. I have to keep pace. When I explained the commitment of volunteering about two hours, one night a week, Tim told me regrettably he wouldn't be able to swing that. But he would as soon as things slowed down. That was five years ago. Things still haven't slowed down. It's likely they never will. There's a trend these days where Instagram influencers and social media mavens promote this idea of hustle. And look, I am not against hard work. Anything worthwhile takes hard work. But I guess I am against blindly following ambition without even examining where you're running, what you're running after, or why. And to be honest, the message of the story of Abraham doesn't seem to fit at all with the central message of these memes. Stay humble, hustle hard. Don't put in half the effort unless you're okay with half the results. Decide what you want, write it down, make a plan, work on it every day. And finally, go big or go home, otherwise you're wasting your youth. Our national motto might be, in God we trust, but ironically, the thing that motto is printed on is probably actually what we put our trust in. When we get it all wrong. I want to say this again clearly. I'm not here to throw shade at anyone. The goal is to love God, and that means trusting God. We all have areas of our life, maybe even whole sectors of our life, while we find it difficult to trust God. We all do. I get it. But when we get it wrong, and you and I get it wrong sometimes, in small ways and big ways, this has real consequences. But, and this is very good news, these consequences are not bigger than God. Let's jump back into Abraham's story to see this. Genesis 16.5. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Again, I think it's pretty clear where the sympathies of the narrator lie in this story. Sarah once again doesn't see reality clearly, this time shifting blame onto her husband, refusing to take responsibility. After taking matters into their own hands, Abraham and Sarah inflict real pain onto Hagar. One of my Bible commentaries put it like this. The Hebrew verb used here, treated her harshly, implies that Sarai subjected Hagar to physical and psychological abuse. It carries with it the nuance of critical judgment of her actions. No wonder Hagar despises her. Sarah sinned by doing this to Hagar, and Abraham sinned by letting it happen, allowing a situation of division that was so intolerable that Hagar ran away into the desert, deeply embittered. Again, when we fail to trust God, the consequences are far-ranging and disastrous. And we are left to wonder, what's going to happen now? There's no way that God could clean up a mess this big, right? Well, the story continues. Genesis 16, 7. It says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running for my mistress, Sarai, she answered. The road to Shur, we are told by archaeologists, is the road back to Hagar's home country of Egypt. But more than that, there's some Hebrew wordplay going on here. The word spring in Hebrew can also mean I, and the word sure also means to see. Someone is watching. Someone sees Hagar's situation in its stark 
totality. Someone is inviting her to share her story. Where are you going? Remember, whenever God asks a question, it's not because he needs information or is confused. God is omniscient. He doesn't forget the lyrics. When God asks a question, it's an invitation to talk to him. Or in this case, it's an invitation to confession. Okay, confession might seem like a strange term to use here because you and I tend to think of confession solely in personal terms, like the sins I myself have committed. And indeed, that is confession. But there's another sort of sin, too, that needs confession, and that is the sin that has been done to us, that has deeply hurt us, the trauma that we have experienced because of sin done to us that has hurt us. As you know, that kind of trauma and that kind of hurt doesn't just go away. We need to bring the searingly painful reality of that sin before God. It's our only hope for healing. God responds with a difficult instruction, but a dramatic, beautiful promise. Genesis 16, 9 says, Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant? And you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild stallion of a man. Now, a quick note in your Bible translation, it might say wild donkey of a man in verse 12, but that sounds like Shrek's unruly companion. In the morning, I'm making waffles. A better translation for that idiom, an untamed donkey, is closer to wild Mustang running free through the plains of the American West, right? So it's more like wild stallion. The point is, we've seen this pattern of fear before. Abraham left his home country and gave away his wife because of fear. Sarah concocted a plan for her husband to impregnate her servant because of fear. Hagar ran away because of fear. Fear tempts us to do things. But all along, God is inviting these three people to trust him, even if it doesn't make sense. To Abraham, he's saying, I am more powerful than Egypt. I control the destiny of even Pharaoh. There's no need to fear. To Sarah, God says, Sarah, you are barren. And there's no earthly way the promise of a son could possibly come true. But daughter, you've forgotten I am the God of life. I will give you a son. There's no need to fear. And to Hagar, he says, I see you, Hagar. You are not suffering alone or in vain. I know the brutality. I know you've been dehumanized, but you are not what has been done to you. You are not discarded, abused. You're not a slave, but you're the mother of future royalty, Your son will grow into a great nation, and he and his descendants will not be enslaved by anyone ever. They will run free. No one will put a harness on him. There's no need to fear. In the end, I'm going to be honest here. I'm not even sure I understand the depths of what God was asking of Hagar. God asked Hagar to trust him and go back to her abusers. Was this God's invitation to Hagar to confront the pain of her past? Was it Was it God rescuing Hagar from a far worse fate of slavery in Egypt? Was this an invitation to forgive them somehow? Was God inviting her to endure through a season of suffering made possible by his glorious promises of a future, which must have been beyond her wildest imagination? Is God somehow doing something in Hagar's character, filling her with empathy and compassion for the broken and the castaway? Look, I don't know. All I know is that God's invitation to Hagar doesn't make sense. It's not what I would have chosen. But Hagar runs toward this promise, lifted and encouraged by the God who sees. And what happens next is one of the more staggering portions in the entirety of Scripture. 
Genesis 16, 13. This is Hagar. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. In this passage, Hagar names God. It's a statement of comprehension of understanding that God reveals to Hagar in which she shares. And something else, for someone to name someone or something, there has to be a relational connectedness. You have to know something. Hagar now knows something about this God, and it's this. God sees her. God sees our suffering. In patriarchal societies like Hagar inhabited, men often expected to be seen, and conversely, women expected not to be seen. This is often the case even today with national or ethnic minorities, but here an Egyptian slave reveals in Scripture something true and new about God. This moment is captured forever. We're still talking about the truth of what Hagar said. God sees. And even though Abraham's God, Yahweh, had been deeply misrepresented to Hagar by Abraham, Hagar still calls upon the name of God and doesn't blame God for the way she was treated. Of all the people in the entire planet, Hagar might be the one to curse Abraham's God, but she doesn't. She realizes even in the story that Abraham's God pursued her, found her, spoke to her. Whatever Hagar's thoughts were of Abraham's religious experience, his God personally invaded her mess. She got to experience Abraham's God for herself. So in a way, Hagar is a hero like Abraham because she responded faithfully. She responded with trust, every bit as big as Abraham's. And incredibly, the story shows that God rewards this kind of trust in any and all people who exhibit it, no matter who, no matter where. This God is for all people. It makes you think, Maybe I should redo those inspirational memes from Instagram and instead include lessons from the life of Abraham. Submit your whole life to God. Walk with God daily. Do your level best. Whatever happens, happens. Or maybe go with God or don't go at all. Otherwise, you could be wasting your life. These stories are a reminder that loving God means trusting God, even when it doesn't make sense. Or should I say, especially when it doesn't make sense.